Marriage on a Tightrope supports couples in strengthening their mixed-faith marriage. Visit tightropemarriage.org to make a recurring donation and learn more about the mixed-faith community. Hello and welcome to another episode of Marriage on a Tightrope. I'm Alan. And I'm Katie. And we're still married. Today we are joined by the one and only Natasha Helfer-Parker. Natasha, thank you so much for joining us today. I wanted to do a little cheerleading. I wanted to go, yay, when you're still married, but then I don't want to shame the people that aren't still married, because that's great too, right? That's right, that's right. We need a little confetti drop or something right now, because I'm super excited about this. Oh, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. For those that aren't familiar with Natasha, we'll have her introduce herself right here, but for those that are, can understand why we're excited to have her today. We opened it up to, to everybody in our Facebook group to ask any questions that they, that they may have about uh, Natasha's speciality, which you're about to hear about, uh, and we're going to go through those questions, and Natasha, you made the, the comment that this could probably be stretched into multiple episodes. Yeah, right, yeah, there were some great questions, and we could probably spend a lot of time on each one, but we'll try to, yeah, get as, get as through as much as possible, yes. <laughs> Perfect. So tell us a little bit about your background, and love to, you can splash in some career, some education, some family, family everything. Mm-hmm. Just tell us about your background a little bit. All right. All right. Well, um, if anybody wants to really do a deep dive into me, I finally conceded and did a Mormon Stories episode on me, on my life. So if anybody wants to you know, delve into Natasha, I guess that's one way you can do it. Great. So I'm a licensed clinical marriage and family therapist. I've been doing that for over 25 years, have primarily been working, did I say 25? No, I'm not that old, over 20 years (laughs) and uh, almost 25 years (laughs) and um, have been primarily working most of my career within kind of the Mormon population, the LDS population. Mm -hmm. Um, I followed my husband around with his career. So we moved a few times. And so, you know, best places where people kind of get word that you're working in this field is a church. And so I'd get a lot of referrals and I worked a few years um, actually contracting with LDS Family Services, although I was kind of like remote. I was never in one of their offices um, and then have been in private practice most of my, most of my time. So in that process, I've gotten to be really interested in faith journeys, and here lately, it seems like there's a lot of um, transitioning and mixed faith, you know, relationships and people struggling with those kinds of issues that have, I would say, really started popping at my door probably in the last 15 years. And um, and there's also been a real intersection for me in the interest of sexuality and sex education and sexual themes working with people in that intersection of faith and sexuality. So about 10 years ago, I went and got my certification through a um, organization called ASECT and got my sex therapy certification completed. And now I'm almost done with becoming a supervisor in that field. So that's kind of my career. As far as personal stuff, let's see. Um, I'm married. I have four kiddos who range uh, from middle school to college now. So that's exciting. Wow. Lots of teenagers, lots of angst and sweat. And <laughs> sex ed. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Especially yeah. with boys, lots of sweat. Yeah. Do your teenagers talk to you pretty openly about this? Some of them do. And some of them could like, they, it's horrific, <laughs> horrific that Mom. their mother would be a sex therapist, right? Like what? <laughs> Trauma. One of those things they don't want their friends to know, like, oh, exactly. no, don't, don't yeah, talk to my mom. Knows, right? <laughs> that is so funny. 
yeah, so you probably get mixed reviews from my kiddos on on that. Um, but I've got you know my therapy fund started, so I can help them out when they need <laughs> when they need that in the future. <laughs> That's great. So we all, yeah. I think, I think, oh, what are, what are my kids going to learn that one day they're going <laughs> to complain about to someone else? <laughs> exactly. I think it's, it's all of our jobs to ruin our kids a little bit. So <laughs> they can have something to, <laughs> to work out in their lives. <laughs> so yeah. And then as far as just my own, you know, uh, faith journey, I'm a member of the church. I've definitely been on a faith journey myself as I've been invited to think about my faith differently through the hundreds and thousands of people now that I've seen um, all over the spectrum of belief to non-belief to uh, even different faith communities that come through my door. And so that's been really, you know, in a lot of ways, interesting and challenging and exciting. And um, so I consider myself kind of like a I guess in all these labels that we all kind of hate um, because they're all limiting in some way or another, but I guess I would consider myself kind of a progressive, nuanced, semi-active member. Is Mm. that, is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. And I really love working with mixed faith couples. I really feel like I can empathize with, with, with both scenarios and the complaints I usually get from mixed faith couples. If they've gone to somebody else's, the classic, I've gone to an LDS therapist and, you know, the non-believer felt misunderstood or pressured or kind of looked down upon or ganged up against, or we went to the non-believing therapist and the believer felt either, again, misunderstood or they didn't understand why this would be such a big deal to begin with. Um, So a lot of, you know, feeling like a hard, it's hard sometimes to find a good fit for couples therapy when you're dealing with this particular struggle. Yeah. So, yeah. Not that it always has to be a struggle, but I'm just saying a lot of people do struggle when they, one of the, one of the, you know, kind of foundational things that we connected with to begin with shifts, you know, in the middle of yeah. a, of a marriage. Yeah. That's, that's difficult. Has it been difficult? I mean, yeah. <laughs> well, what, what I think it's good. Our, our objective is about, I'm about to let loose the secret objective of, of asking you to be on here. We just wanted a free therapy session. <laughs> I mean, I, we don't even have a podcast, Natasha. We're, <laughs> we're, we just, are, we're telling you that we do. <laughs> I thought I heard you guys had a pretty good podcast. Darn it. <laughs> Both of the topics that you just mentioned are, are what we would love to take questions from our listeners for. Uh, if we have time, uh, Katie and I can talk about uh, uh, one one personal issue, not I don't want to call it an issue, right? A situation that we found ourselves in last year and is still kind of a topic of interest today. Yeah, and in fact, like a couple nights ago, we we talked about like sex before marriage, and and I don't know, things got heated, and Alan's like, it's I feel so bad that we're not having this discussion with Natasha. We should be talking about it right now, and I'm like, no, I'm not ready yet. So anyway. Yeah, let's start with start the, with some the kind of the mixed faith marriage uh, questions first. Yeah, um, we'll just have a dialogue uh, about these questions. I've most of them are very short. There's one that I wanted to read a full story just so people can get into the mind of of one of the listeners and what they're going through. So, looking at the list, just that first one, which actually I numbered incorrectly. Meeting with all of these mixed faith marriage couples, you said it's really started to spike over the last 15 years. Yeah. Um, what are the top three or four common threads you've seen 
in what makes a mixed faith marriage successful versus not successful. And, yeah, and so define what is success or yeah, what not is success? success? What does that mean? <laughs> right, yeah. right. It doesn't right, necessarily right. mean staying together. Right. Well, sure. I mean, I think a lot of couples start out with that goal, you know, trying to make sure that they can get through something like this. I mean, it depends, you know, sometimes a faith transition comes kind of as a last straw type of deal in a marriage where the marriage wasn't that strong to begin with. Right. And there were a lot of conflictual things happening already. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of like feels like we didn't have a lot of foundations to begin with together. And this was the last one. And now that isn't there either. Mm -hmm. That's a very different presentation from a couple I might get where this is the only thing they feel disconnected in and they feel very strong and like they share a lot of different areas of intimacy. Um, In fact, that's one thing I could offer just as a starting is um, doing an assessment of all the areas of intimacy in your relationship. And I typically think about four. So what's your emotional intimacy like, you know, how you talk about emotions and how you read each other's body language and how much time do you make for those kinds of things in your relationship. Another type of intimacy is intellectual. So these would be shared interests, you know, are you exciting to go and talk to over dinner? (laughs) Or do we have commonalities or do we have hobbies? Do we, do we do things that we enjoy together? Um, The third one would be um, kind of what I call um, spiritual or existential intimacy. So this doesn't mean that you need to share religious beliefs. It just means that you share maybe values, dreams, ideas of meaning of life, you know, what do you hope for in life, things of that nature, and how comfortable are you talking about your belief systems, so they don't have to be the same to still feel very connected, like, oh, it's safe to talk about this with you, Um, and then last one would be physical intimacy, which of course includes our sex lives, but is more than that, it's affection, you know, being able to share our thoughts, our fantasies, our minds, not just our bodies, right, with each other. So those are four different areas. And what I typically find is that most couples are pretty good at two or three of them. And they've kind of always struggled with one or two of them. Mm. Um, So that's, you know, so we kind of, you know, when I start with couples, I'm kind of thinking about that or asking about that so we can see First of all, what are your strengths? What can we rely on? What are your assets together? And how can we use those assets to help you in these areas where you're weaker and that you can develop stronger connection? And I liked your question about success. I mean, we, we oftentimes think of success as staying married. You know, I think that success can be, I mean, I think people stay married really unsuccessfully, yeah. and really tragically in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think people uh, divorce successfully and amicably and still keep a very um, comfortable family structure for their children and for each other. And I think, you know, people divorce horribly too, and, you know, can be very toxic and can be very uh, damaging to one another and to the kids in the process. So I really like to stay away from divorce or marriage being the, the parameters of success. Mm-hmm. It's more about, are we able to stay emotionally um, regulated? Are we able to have a certain level of satisfaction in our relationship, especially if we're staying married? I do not use the word happy because happy is a fleeting moment. (laughs) So the idea of a happy marriage is kind of a misnomer. So I want to think about sustainability and you can be happy, grumpy, upset, neutral, confused, and um, 
thrilled all in like three hours, right? <laughs> so that can happen with emotions. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think that emotions come and go, but we generally want to feel like we're in a sustainable, safe, somewhat safe, right? Not 100% safe because not one person can offer you safety at 100% level because you're, they're different from you at some level, right? So we need to have some level of discomfort, but is that discomfort manageable? Do I feel mm-hmm. generally safe? Do I feel respected? Do I feel heard? Do I feel like the intimacy I'm sharing with you is, um, is fairly good? And I tend to tell people that's at about 70%. Are you getting about 70%? of your needs met in this relationship. And if you are, then great. Because one of the myths, I think, of the soulmate relationship, which we oftentimes grow up hearing, is that we're going to meet the one, and they're going to meet all of our needs. (laughs) They're going to take care of all of our discomfort. (laughs) And sure, we'll face problems, but not with each other. (laughs) You know, we'll face (laughs) against the world. (laughs) So we set up the narrative really with a lot of false and unfortunate expectations to begin with. And I think then we all kind of fail. I mean, we're kind of, we're going to fail with those kinds of scripts and narratives. So Natasha, along those lines, I've always um, thought of the idea of like pre-marriage counseling. Now I think of it and I'm like, man, I wish I had had that. I mean, that to me is like huge. And I know that a lot of people in other religions they go through a pre-marriage counseling before they get married. Um, do you feel how, like, what do you think about that? And how do you think that would help some of these issues that would come up maybe in the future? I love the idea of premarital counseling, especially in, you know, cultures such as ours where people tend to marry quickly, you know, or at least quicker than like the general population. So, um, and a lot of that is driven by, you know, the idea that we don't want to wait too long to have sex, right? And if we're trying not to have sex, Mm -hmm. (laughs) then, you know, we might wait a year or six months, but in general, you know, Mormons are getting married quicker than the general population. Um, And so are other traditional uh, religions, not just us. Mm -hmm. So I think that especially in those cases, you haven't had time to really, um, get through the limerence phase. You know, the limerence phase is kind of this phase where you originally connect and feel all these butterflies and it's very infatuous and you, you love each other. You can't see anything wrong with the other person. And, and those are really powerful, wonderful feelings of falling in love with somebody, right? And we want those feelings. And yet we know through the, through the research that that feeling is not sustainable. So mm-hmm. it's going to last at, at most probably 18 months. Six mm-hmm. months to 18 months is about what that feeling lasts. Now that doesn't mean we're all doomed. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it just means that it's after those feelings that you start getting into the weeds with somebody and start yeah. really recognizing, oh, these things that I thought were so exciting about you now really annoy the heck out of me, right? So mm-hmm. like before you were so spontaneous and now you're just like, unorganized right yeah (laughs) well okay so so I mean now I'm interested because Alan said to me like yesterday he's like you know I don't know if our marriage would have survived had I gone through a faith um transition early in the marriage like Mm -hmm. within the first year or two of marriage and I would like to think that that's not true I'd like to think like no of course we would still be together but what I mean how what do you see in your experience 
as far as as far as as when when as the fake transition as, happens yeah when it happens i mean does it make a difference if you're within your first or second or third year of marriage or if you're later on in your marriage is that something that you've seen that's been more difficult for younger couples well, I don't have any data for that. Um, as I'm thinking through, I think it's more relational quality and also kids. So if the relational quality isn't that great, and it might be the straw that would break the camel's back, mm. a lot of couples are willing to sit with that for a minute if they have kids, mm. right? And really try to do some work um, and see if they can make it work together because kids kind of you know, bring that out in us, that protective kind of, um, yeah, of course. part of us. And I think that's true of a lot of marital issues, not just make, not just fake transitions. Right. Mm-hmm. So I get a lot of people who come in and they'll say, well, one of the main reasons we're still together is because of the kids. And I'm like, well, that's a good beginning reason. It's not really a sustainable reason, mm-hmm. but it's a good reason to at least be in here trying and seeing if there's some things that we can tweak and work on and maybe really turn the ship around in some ways, you know, and that, that can happen. So I don't know. I don't know if at the beginning, I mean, I've had some young couples come in and some of them are like, no big deal. And I didn't marry the church. I married you type of, you know, ideas. And, but you know, that's different than some of the couples that maybe don't even make it into my door. I don't know that a lot of young couples go to marriage therapy, especially if they've only been married one to three years. Yeah. Um, if they kind of had a rough start to begin with, which a lot of couples do that for those, that first three years can be a really rough place for a lot of couples Mm -hmm. as they're adjusting to this whole new life together. And so if if this happens during that time, maybe they just, and they don't have kids, let's say they just call it a day without even coming into my office. That could be happening. I I don't know. Yeah. Right. But I do think back to your original question, I think premarital counseling is a great idea. Yeah. One thing the Catholics have got over us, they're doing that well. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I think, but I don't think premarital counseling is the panacea either. You can't predict everything that's going to happen to you. You can't, even if you have some general ideas or talk about some things that you wouldn't have thought to talk about, which is the whole kind of concept of premarital counseling you're still going to hit bumps along the road that you never saw coming, right? Yeah. Or that you thought you would feel one way about and then feel very differently about once you're there. Yeah. So it's not, you know, um, <laughs> the absolute lubricant of a relationship, but I think it definitely helps. Yeah. yeah. What have you find, what have you found rather is a successful way for someone that, uh, well, I'll just read her question. How do you suggest I connect spiritually with my nuanced still Mormon husband. So what have you find as successful ways to connect spiritually? Well, one of the things that I like to do with my couples who come in, who are mixed faith, one of the first homework assignments I give them is to go home and do what I call a values exercise. And whether you want to call it a values or beliefs or a testimony, write down everything you can think of that you believe or that you hold to be valuable or that you think is true, you know, and, and things kind of tend to fall into certain categories. Like you've got the Mormon things, kind of the unique Mormon things, right? Like, well, I believe that, um, in the restoration of the priesthood, right? That's a pretty Mormon thing to believe. Mm -hmm. But then you get into other things that Mormons don't own, you know, but are maybe still religious. Like I believe in God, you know, or I believe in, 
um, some divine being or power, or I believe in um, the concept of honesty, right? So these are things that most religions are talking about. Um, you don't have to be Mormon to believe those things. So, and then there's things that you don't necessarily need to be religious to believe, but that you hear a lot in religious communities, like the golden rule. You know, you don't have to be religious to believe that you should treat your community correctly, right? Or that you should be a good community member or that you should help people like service. You know, that can be something that you value in your life is service. Um, so, I, you know, and then you have your secular things that really have nothing to do with religion. Like, I don't know, the value of education or I think that we should recycle, you know, or I think, you know, we should walk the dogs and exercise our pets, you know, <laughs> or I believe, you know, so there's all these things, there's all these things. And what I find is that in a mixed faith relationship, people are really struggling because in the, in the field of yellow flowers, now we have this one red flower that's really popping out at you. You know, your, your, your vision is drawn to that one red flower, which is this different thing that has popped up that you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. And we're wired that way, right? We're wired to notice the difference. Think about the deer, right? And it's it's wired to hear that one snap of the twig in the forest that alerts it to danger. Well, we're wired that way. Um, and we forget the thousands of yellow flowers that we're still among. And that's where you need to start finding your commonalities. And I can guarantee you, you know, a lot of times when we say, well, how can I spiritually connect with my husband? We're talking about prayer or we're talking about fasting or we're talking about going to church or we're talking about scripture study. When in reality, you can spiritually connect by having, um, you know, having a practice of like mindfulness together or having a, a conversation about um, mantras that you both find useful, right? Or you can connect spiritually by taking a walk in nature and being in awe of, you know, a beautiful sunset together. I mean, there's lots of ways that you can spiritually, ethereally connect with one another. And especially, I, you know, I hope with my mixed faith couples, I, I try to get them to a point where they can even share their own spiritual ways so that you can get kind of into the habit of like, yeah, one night, maybe one person does share a scripture that really means something to them. And the next night somebody else shares something that they heard on a Ted talk, right. But that means something very spiritual to them. And so, and we can tolerate these differences in one another and not see them as threats, but as ways that we actually edify each other. So that's what we're working towards. And I think that there's lots of ways you can spiritually connect. Is there a difference in, maybe not in your approach, but when, when you're counseling with a couple and it's not a nuanced situation, one of them is very orthodox, very literal, and healthy communication is very difficult. How do you overcome that? I mean, some of our listeners are in a situation where uh, their spouse is not listening to our podcast because mm-hmm. no way will they listen to something like this. Typically, the couples that are both listening are are there is at least a level of nuance or understanding or they're trying oh. to to understand but in the situation where maybe that spouse is not at that place uh that's a difficult one sure it is and and sometimes but that's not necessarily a faith transition issue that's a differentiation issue it's just showing up really hard in the faith area right 
And all of us differ in emotional intelligence, all of us differ in our ability to manage anxiety, all of us differ in ways that we manage. Um, yeah, when differences arise, many of us are very avoidant, right? Or we don't want to engage in things that are scary or that threaten what feels like the, the peace, right? Or the um, and for for some people, again, you know, the Mormon spectrum is large. For some people, it's really no big deal to have a faith transition. It's like, well, of course, we're all supposed to have our own journey, and isn't the whole plan about agency anyway? And and then there's other people that it's like, this means that I could potentially lose you in the eternities, right? And so if you're looking, depending on what type of spectrum you're or lens you're looking through, mm. this, this faith transition can be extremely frightening and devastating to believing spouses. And what we also want to remember for the believing spouse is that they didn't ask for this journey. Now, I know that the non-believer didn't either, right? It's not like one of us, you know, like we wake up in the morning, we're like, oh, I can't wait to go through a faith crisis today. You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, I can't wait to change my mind about Nephi and... <laughs> um you know and whatever so we don't but it but we come at it you know the person who's transitioning comes at that process more organically Mm. more like on their own timeline you know it's it's happening organically and the questions and the doubts are coming up and and they're having to struggle and it's a struggle individually as well most of us aren't super happy when that's happening right it's we're having to face a lot of unknowns, our own identity, or questions. I mean, it's a very scary process just individually. So imagine then the believing spouse who hasn't even, that, that process hasn't even, you know, hit their radar. And, um, and their only connection to that is through you, who, you know, now you're bringing them a whole lot of hurt that they didn't want or ask for or didn't expect you know, it feels, I hear a lot of times from the believer that it's like, you're changing the contract on me, right? Like, I yeah. thought we signed up for this, right? Honey, right? Like, and now you're telling me what, and you know, and now we've got kids on board and it can just feel extremely devastating. So most of the times I feel like that, that initial harsh response um, is usually temporary, usually. And what I mean by temporary is like a week to three years, right? I mean, it can be, it can be a long time. Um, and hopefully if you're, if you're really hitting kind of a, a wall in the faith transition aspect, then how do you start? And you're still interested in continuing the relationship because there's lots of other things that are good about the relationship. How do you focus more on those kinds of things? And again, even if your partner isn't willing to do this values exercise with you, do it yourself, you know, like do it yourself and kind of think, well, what, what do I think we'd still be on the same page on about? Um, and it, it can be hard to find that because again, we keep things so through the Mormon lens, like word of wisdom, for example. Well, I know, you know, so people are like, oh my gosh, coffee, we're going to have a huge fight about coffee. Okay. So it can be really hard to even think like there's any common denominator there, but there's usually a common denominator. So dig deeper, go deeper, do your math, do your faith transition math, right? <laughs> so find your common denominator. Most of us are going to agree that we should probably be taking care of our bodies. Mm. Most of us are going to have some 
principle and the word of wisdom type of language that we're both going to find agreement on. So really dig deep to try to find what those are, even though it feels very upsetting to be in the weeds with the day-to-day -day markers, right, which Mormonism has a lot of markers, a lot of little ways that we deal with life, like coffee and alcohol and garments and tithing and church activity and callings and seminary and, you know, missions yeah. and, right? I mean, there's like a lot of things that can feel very, all of a sudden very overwhelming to have to renegotiate all these little things that we took for granted at one point. You know, yeah. Got no. nothing about. I totally, I totally agree with that. I tell Alan, like, I feel like it's waves, you know, like I, I feel just when I'm through the grief or the hurt, then I, another wave comes up on me and we're sitting in sacrament meeting and, and it's Easter Sunday. And I look at Alan and I say, oh my gosh, do you still believe that Jesus Christ was resurrected? I mean, things that you like during the sacrament, during hymn, the sacrament, she asked me that question. And, but it's, but it's, but it's so interesting because it, you don't think about all these things usually up at front. It's they come in waves. And, yeah. and so, um, yeah, I just, so I just totally relate to what you're saying about that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and even the transitioners going on a ride that they don't know where they're going to end up, you yeah. know, because transitioners can end in spaces where they still feel very Christian or still feel very deist or get to a point where they feel agnostic or even atheist. Right. And so that's, that's a spectrum in of itself. And so yeah. sometimes the believing spouse, again, what I'll hear from them is when is it going to end? When is the shift? Like, I feel like I'm on this train ride that I don't even know where it's going or when it's going to end. Right. right. Yeah. And they're looking at me and they're looking at their spouse, like what the heck? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, that's, that is, it takes a while. And, and, and in some ways faith journeys are lifelong, you know, and, that's actually very, I mean, you can find these teachings in traditional teachings of Mormonism, right? That faith journeys are lifelong and we are continually shifting and changing. Most people, even if they stay Mormon, I mean, every you know, for those of you who are believers, think about every time you are either in, in a sacrament meeting or general conference or at the temple and you have like an aha moment. Mm -hmm. And somebody says a scripture or a quote or something that you totally look at differently, like they gave you a totally different perspective, or now you've had a life experience, right, that gives you a totally different way of thinking about it. That's a faith transition. Mm -hmm. That's a faith transition. Now it doesn't put you into crisis, and it doesn't necessarily take you away from your faith. Mm -hmm. but most of us don't stay in the same faith space we were at when we were 15 or 25 or 35, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So as you're talking about core values and what you both um, recognize in common or similar, um, I think that can help you moving forward with your kids. So what, what would you suggest? This question says, um, what are some tips on balancing and expressing two different belief systems in one home, particularly when raising children so that neither partner feels silenced? Right. So, and I just, I just, I, I don't necessarily want to do this to plug my stuff, but just because I know I have so much information to share oh, that I will never be it. able to, to share everything. So I have a, a, a small book that I wrote. It's called One Family, Two Views, mm. How to Fortify Your Mixed Faith Mormon Marriage. And I have a whole chapter in there about parenting. 
And then I just did um, some webinars with the help of um, my colleague, John DeLynn, because we both work a lot with mixed faith marriages. Yeah. And, um, and those will be up at the um, mormonfaithcrisis.com. So, and there's a whole, and the webinars was three parts, right? So the first part was just understanding faith transitions and how they affect your relationship. The second part was all about marriage and what are you going to, you know, how are you going to especially like work on those four intimacies, et cetera. How do you communicate effectively and lovingly, all those things. And then the third part was the parenting piece, which Mm -hmm. is huge, right? Mm -hmm. It's huge. Um, oh, and if anybody wants to go on a cruise, I'm going, I was invited to a Mormon transitions cruise next year. That's <laughs> so right. I'll, I heard about that. Oh, okay. So Plug I'll, it. I'll be doing, and when? I think it's like an Alaska cruise. It's next July. We it's transitioning <laughs> Mormons cruise. And I'll be to- doing a total day on parenting there as well. So wow. anyway, just not that, I mean, do you really want to talk to me or go to Alaska? I don't know, but <laughs> you'll have to decide. <laughs> Yeah. It's a win-win situation, Natasha. It, 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 you want to do both. That's, that's <laughs> right. the answer. Well, we'll be doing some some both. Anyway, all of that stuff will, you can find on natashaparker.org, which is my website. So lots of stuff that I do. Just because I get a little hyper when you ask these questions, and I know I want to speak like three hours just on right. this. I know. I know. It's perfect. Okay. So as far as when it comes to, to kids, I really think I really, truly believe this. Um, So this is my testimony (laughs) is that a mixed faith marriage that's going well is a huge asset to your children, Mm. huge asset to your children. And by doing it well, I mean that you have got each other's backs. You have got each other's backs and, um, and now your kids don't just get to hear how you tolerate other people's opinions and beliefs. They get to see it mm-hmm. and they don't get to, you know, basically just follow along in your testimony journey, which is what most of our kids do is they just kind of follow what their parents are doing. They get to really think and choose. Now I know that's scary for us, but guess who did this? Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother, I would say everybody loves Satan's plan, but Satan's plan is not the plan, people. (laughs) (laughs) I always tease that we love Satan's plan. Even non-Mormons love Satan's plan. All parents, right? We want to control our kids. We want to know what they're going to do. We want to make sure they succeed, right? We want to make sure that they go forward. You know, that the plan that we have, at least in Mormon theology, is very different. It's about agency. It's about choice. It's about not forcing. It's about guiding and comforting, but never forcing. So you really get to do that in real time. Mm. And it's, and it's, there's something really beautiful about that. Mm. And, um, and so just to give you an example of what I'm talking about, you know, you might have a kid who comes home from seminary, right? And they're like, well, we just learned about, I don't know, polygamy, right? Or something. And, and mom says, well, yeah, that's one of the things that really ticked me off and why I left the church. And dad says, yeah, and that's one of those things that didn't really bother me, right? <laughs> or if, or if, or if dad isn't there, let's say, mom says, but your dad sees it differently mm. and it didn't bother him as much. Like he didn't like the idea of it, but it wasn't enough to start a faith transition for him. And he mm. sees it totally differently and make sure you get his thoughts on it. Because mm. I'll tell you my thoughts on it, right? That's how you have each other's backs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will come back and say, well, isn't that confusing? Isn't that confusing? And I'm like, you know what? Your kids will, lo- will you're not going to be able to protect your kids from ideas and thoughts 
what better way for them to start thinking, being critical thinkers in your own home um, with, you know, loving and respectful parents, because the chances of your kids marrying or having kids of their own who will have a different faith journey than them is super, super high. Like, is anybody paying attention to the, you know, to the, to the polls, right? I mean, people are shifting in their religions all over the place. Mm. So are you going to be able to offer them the role modeling tools that they will need to be able to manage different ideas around faith and religion and spirituality in their primary relationships when they grow up? You're in a great position to be able to offer that. So hopefully that gives you like some hope and some yeah. like and even some motivation, right? Like, oh, we can do this. <laughs> like we thought I thought yeah. this was about me, but maybe I can do this. Sometimes we're more willing to do things for our kids than we are for ourselves. And it can really kind of light a fire, you know, under you. You can really benefit from that as a couple. I'd love to add my testimony of that <laughs> exact concept. And I've, the last few months, so you know, Natasha, I think the last probably four to five months mm-hmm. have, have settled a lot of anxiety around the kids for both of us. Yeah. Cause we've had some, our first conversation with our older two, 11 and 12 year old sons, when I stopped going to church for good in December was a difficult conversation because it was still emotionally raw for both of us. But then fast forward to just a few weeks ago, within the last month, we had a family home evening and Katie was, uh, didn't tell me that she was going to do this, but she brought up the entire thing about, does dad go to church with us? <laughs> and this is with our five and seven-year-old kids as well who are there. And they were like, no, he stays home. And then he makes us lunch when we get home. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and um, we just had a very open conversation. And some of the things they'll, they'll hear us talking about, a listener, for example, that, that reached out and said how, how devastated she was because... Uh, someone came over to her house from the neighborhood who was also a member and said that she was uninviting her, her eight-year-old daughter to her daughter's birthday party because she was no, her, her mom no longer went to church. Mm. And our seven-year-old daughter overheard that. And we didn't even think she was paying attention. She says, that's just stupid. <laughs> it doesn't matter if you go to church or not. That means I wouldn't be able to play with in, so insert so. name of yeah. her best mm-hmm. friend that she plays with. Like that doesn't make any sense. And so it just the last few months have really put us at ease and it doesn't settle everything. I look at my seven-year-old's baptism next year and I have no idea where we're going to be at when that comes. It's in April. Mm-hmm. That's a, that's a going to be a difficult mo- moment, whatever happens. And yeah. I think it's been, it's, it, it's given me hope and the message you share gives us hope that it's going to be okay. You're going to get through it. Yeah. I got goosebumps when you were talking about it because, (laughs) um, yeah, that was like the the best cheerleading rah-rah advice that you could (laughs) say to a parent in this situation. Honestly, I, I love that. Thanks for letting us editorialize a little bit. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, I love it. I, I, it's so important. And, And back to that values exercise. And like you mentioned family home evening. Yeah. Don't do anything in family home evening that isn't on that joint list. Right. And you've got plenty. You're not going to get through everything on that joint list to talk about, right? So why are we talking about Nephi when we can be talking about honesty, right? Do your family home evening on on honesty if one of you has a problem with the Book of Mormon, right? Or, And then don't have the believer do be the spiritual one. That's stupid. Your kids will get so bored 
if you play the believer and non-believer card, then you'll, you're predictable and you'll get all the eye rolls. Mm. So make sure that the transitioner is bringing up spirituality and make sure that the believer is bringing up history and science because otherwise you're boring. I like that. <laughs> I like that too. I, like that. I totally am boring Where's too. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, family home evening, we could have a whole episode about that and we probably oh should gosh. because we've never been more consistent or engaged or engaged with family home evening since yeah. our transition because it's yeah. like we've got to teach these kids we have to make sure that we're both comfortable with the joint list i love that that's a, yeah. that's really helpful for for our situation for sure yeah it is yeah i love it all right so a couple more questions on this before we get over to the to the sex stuff all right okay <laughs> his favorite part that's right <laughs> and these are pretty specific questions how can I get my husband to understand the need for me to have my online community of postmos? This has been, uh, that was difficult for us for a while of what are you doing on your phone? Who are you talking to? Oh, Facebook. What, what group are you on on Facebook? At, maybe I could shift the question or you can answer this question as well. Um, at what point do you feel like an online community can be hurtful? Yeah. Well, well, there's, yeah. So I, again, um, well, let me start in a different place here for a minute. I think, because I think this will go into our sex talk as well. Uh, yeah. One of the biggest myths I think that we get married under in this whole kind of, you know, romanticized Western notion of what love is about is the myth of ownership. And you'll hear this in, in love songs, you know, like, I belong to you. You belong to me. You're my soulmate. Right. You're, we're the, we're you're one. Treading on danger. You're, you're throwing Taylor Swift under the bus. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I like. Just be careful. Shaking it off. <laughs> Shaking it off. <laughs> but uh, anyway, I'm just, you know, I think we have a lot of discomfort when we are faced with the individual aspects of our partner. Because we really, we really focus on the partnering piece. Um, and, and I'm not just talking about Mormons here. I'm talking about general United States culture and just kind of falling in love culture. You know, there's a lot of cultures out there that really love isn't really a main driver as to why you'd get married. I mean, that still is out there. But for the cultures where it is, it can feel like, you know, everything should be about the partnership. Everything should be okay with both people. Every, you know, anything that isn't would be a huge threat and we need to stay away from those kinds of things. And I definitely see that a lot in the Mormon narrative, right? In the LDS narrative. That's, I think, something we really need to challenge because instead of, you know, see, nobody wants to be owned. Nobody wants to lose um, autonomy in a relationship. Think about, I mean, the first thing that we do when we can develop is we say no mm. when we're two, right? <laughs> We say, no, I don't want to, right? Or yes, I do want to. <laughs> you don't want to right now. That's a problem. And, this, and then what happens is we get into huge meaning ruts, right? So when those things, when, when either you're doing something I don't want you to do, or I want to do something that you don't want me to do, what's the meaning we make of that? Instead of seeing that as a normal part of being two adults that have to live with each other, most of us go to meaning ruts such as you don't love me, you don't prioritize me. I don't matter to you. I'm not attractive if it's a sexual thing. We go to all this meaning when in reality, we're just facing a very normal part of being two individuals in a partnership. 
So this online community thing kind of falls into that. Community we know is hugely important. If you're a believer, you have that community at church. And we are really good at community in Mormon land. We yeah. really are, you know, like uh, we make good friends. I know that, you know, when I look back at every play, every time I've moved away, I immediately felt like I had instant community in my ward, you know, and immediately made friends. That, you know, when I was a young mom, I made young mom friends. You know, when I was um, a, a young married person, I made young married person friends. I mean, we, you know, we just kind of connected very easily. Mm. So for a believer, if you're, if you're um, upset about this, what you really have to recognize is that your transitioning partner has now lost a huge part of that sense of community. Now you could say, well, well, you haven't lost it. Like still come to church. Like the people will still love you or care for you. And that's true to a point. But when I talk about community, we're talking about people who get it, who get it, right? So people at church are going to get the believer's perspective much more than they're going to get the transitioner's perspective. And in fact, sometimes at church, um, they say things that are not very kind to the transitioner. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now that hap- the same dynamics happen on the other side of this. Okay. So the transitioner needs new community. Well, guess what? There isn't the church down the road of post-Mormons <laughs> that you can just go yeah. and attend, right? <laughs> so, so online community has, has, tra- has transformed people's ability to reach out for support. And that's true in so many areas, not just faith transitioners, right? So like sex abuse victims and, you know, parent moms who maybe have Down syndrome kids, right? Or there's a group for dads who stay at home. And, and now they can find these online groups where people get it. They get that shared experience. Mm. And everybody needs that. We need that for mental health. And just like church can sometimes treat your transitioner badly, some of these online communities can treat your believer badly. Mm. And when you're in a mixed faith marriage, you have got to nip that in the bud. Mm. If you're the privileged person at church, you nip those comments in the bud. You say, you're not allowed to talk badly about my spouse. And if you're in the transitioner, whether it's an online group or community group or wherever you have privilege, where they maybe make fun of believers or think they're stupid or, you know, naive or whatever. We say all these horrible things about each other, right? Like believers are stupid and naive and transitioners are prideful and egotistical. And I mean, you know, we could come up with probably 20, 30, 50 things that we, we call each other. And it's when you see that happening, you need to nip that in the bud in behalf of your spouse. Hmm. Okay. So that's one thing. Now, post-Mormon communities, tend to be full of angst. They do. They tend to be full of like sadness, some anger, feelings of betrayal. So, uh, so there's, a, so there is a little bit of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, they're supportive. People get me. I don't feel alone. I, I don't feel like I'm going crazy. I, this group helps me have my sanity, right? You hear all these things. And sometimes after a while, it can get too heavy. Because people in those groups are generally coming in in a space of harm and hurt and sadness and anger, which is a normal part of the grieving cycle. But the grieving cycle, hopefully, you know, um, it it's allowing you to move past anger, right? So that you can move into spaces of acceptance 
and new ideas and new goals and you're not constantly in that space of now being kind of quote unquote triggered by every new person who's coming in in that very raw space. So I think that all transitioners probably need to have a good look at their online relationships, you know, with these groups and kind of just do an assessment, you know, are these helping me? Am I still needing the same level of support I needed when I first started? Do I need to find other types of groups? Um, And I think that's true of all relationships, right? That we should kind of be constantly assessing and believers should be doing that with their church communities too. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. I did a purge of a lot of the Facebook groups a few months ago. And so I think it's that cycle, right? Right. It's that cycle. The the groups are there for a really good reason. Mm -hmm. They may not be groups you want to always be a part of or find other groups. I, um, a, a, podcaster who's somewhat famous in the post-transitioning world world of Mormonism. His name is John Larson. And he yeah. says, the goal is to be an ex ex Mormon. The typical stereotype of the ex Mormon is angry and sad. And, and there's good reasons to be angry and sad, right? We kind of, sometimes as believers, we poo poo that like, oh, they're so silly. They're angry and sad. I'm like, no, there's good reasons. And yet you don't want to stay angry and sad with your relationship with a culture that you were primarily raised in or that influenced you and so yeah. you want to get into a healthier space with that, even if you're moving on from it. Yeah. Good, Good advice. Yeah. Last question. Uh, okay. <laughs> what do you, th- and before we get to, to the uh, second part, so what do you think the biggest thing the church could do to help mixed faith marriages that they aren't currently doing? So not saying they're not doing anything, but is there anything that comes to mind that's like, you know, it would be very helpful if the church was able to X. Yeah. And this is probably where I'm just going to be fairly critical. I, I don't really see the church doing much on this. I don't think that they're doing much. And in fact, the few things that they have done, I think have been more harmful than helpful. I think of the, um, is it Resland talk just recently about doubters yeah. really being very, I and mean, we don't, what we don't need is talks that otherize that you know that make a certain whole group of people feel less than and this is where i just think our culture in general and mormonism isn't very well differentiated you know and and it's hard for cultures we're not the only ones that claim universal truth to make room for any other truth right so when we say we're the one and only true church and when we truly believe that um, it's hard then to step away from that, that, that space or that philosophy to really make room for another person who has a different truth than that. And so we oftentimes talk in ways that I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I listen very carefully during general conference and things. And I'm like, okay, I'm hoping, right. And I'm like, ah, oh, now I'm in more business and I don't want this kind of business. <laughs> I don't want the kind of business where people come in more traumatized or more upset or more hurt after these kinds of talks because you know Nelson just basically said you know reminded everybody that nobody's making it to the celestial kingdom together right or that you know um Reslin says you know things that are really disrespectful about transitioning people and and we have these you know if you feel like your transition if you're told that your transitioning spouse is weak um that they're um justifying sin that they are you know not acting correctly that's going to automatically set up conflict in the relationship 
Mm-hmm. Whereas if we could give messages more like, okay, yeah, it's hard. And it's, of course, we are going to be saddened as a church if we lose anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet we can respect your journey. And we have the Mormon principles to help us with that. We have the principle of agency. We have the principle um, of choices. We have a mixed faith marriage to begin the whole flipping story with Adam and Eve. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. We have, and Eve wasn't disagreeing with president Nelson or, you know, following some, she was like, she had a major conflict of interest with God's idea of not eating the fruit. It was God himself. Yeah. <laughs> and we still honor Eve, right. Mm-hmm. As somebody who had insight and, you know, this idea that we constantly have wrestling principles. She had the principle of obedience versus the principle of knowledge. And she chose knowledge. And there's nothing wrong with either principle, right? Adam chose obedience. They were both good principles. And that put them in a mixed faith relationship. Mm-hmm. And he chose to leave the garden with her. Because at the end of the day, the relationship was what mattered. And there's a scripture that says it. Oh, I just looked it up. Bear with me a minute. 1 Corinthians 7.13. And the woman, this time it's the woman, <laughs> and the woman, <laughs> which, hath a, which hath a husband that believeth not. And if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. We do not have a justification in the gospel for leaving our transitioning spouses. And yet I see that over and over mm. and over again. And I think it's tragic, especially when we are the church of families. Right. We're so family focused. And yet the, the transitioning spouse dilemma blows up so many relationships in ways that I think is unnecessary and tragic. And I do hold our leadership responsible. They should have more resources in place. They mm-hmm. should be more careful with their language. They should be more relational in what they're sharing and not otherizing and fear mongering and making the whole thing much more uh, scary and upsetting for um, so many members that are in this position that are trying to do their best to, you know, get, keep their little boats afloat. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, I think like that's really important to know. I, I won in leader roulette luckily. And um, I had a great sick president who told me that he would never tell me to leave my husband if, unless he was abusive or, you know, but he just said, Katie, I, I just don't, I would never tell you to leave your husband just because he is changing what he believes. And if he still treats you well and you have a good marriage and you're working through things, that's, you still need to, to um, hold to that. And, and I, you know, I try to convey some of the same things to other couples, but I, I think it's so ingrained in us that no, we have, we have to believe the same things because we, we're not going to like live together forever. You know, it's all these little steps. You get married in the temple and that's it. Really. I really like how you put it because that's, that's a really hard thing for the believing spouse. Well, and, and divorce doesn't solve this issue. Divorce doesn't solve it because not again, not that I'm saying saying sometimes this is like the last straw and people are like, okay, you know, enough is enough. We've got to move on. Like things are way too toxic between us anyway, et cetera. But divorce isn't going to solve a mixed faith transition issue because you can marry the next person. There's no guarantee, just like there was no guarantee with this relationship 
that five years down the road, you're not in the same flipping mess, either now yourself or your new partner has gone through a phase transition. You also still need to co-parent with the person that you left, Mm -hmm. which means that you're still going to have to manage, um, you know, co-parenting ideas and dynamics that include both Mormon and non-Mormon parenting styles. And now you're going to have a lot less control, in fact, of, you know, the ability to kind of have a narrative that works for, for everybody. Mm. So divorce is not the answer to a mixed faith crisis, unless like I'm saying, it's, it's other things, but let's not kid ourselves that somehow this is the answer. Plus, I just think it's silly from a gospel oriented perspective when we're told that we're going to face trials when we're told that you can lose everything, I mean, there's Job's story, for example, when you're told that part of the whole idea is to come here and be tested in ways you never anticipated. I mean, I just don't, it doesn't really make sense to me <laughs> from, yeah. from a very Mormon perspective as to how people justify this um, as the primary reason to leave their spouse. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Katie suggested to me that we approach our bishop and team teach a mixed faith marriage Sunday school class. Mm. Okay. So I, I was, little, I'm surprised you didn't fight back. Cause I was actually the one that suggested. I was that. just waiting for you to fess up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> you knew where I was going with that. I, I think it would be just again at the local level would be so great if, if we could have a space on Sunday for those types of conversations and right. They can trust. I'm not going to bring up anything crazy. I'm not going to bring up. We don't bring up any any truth claim stuff on the podcast at all. It's no, all about it's the all marriage. about marriage. And I just if you hear me talk. I never. The only doctrinal stuff I bring up is the stuff that supports what I'm about through the Mormon lens. Really, right. yeah. You don't have to talk about doctrine to talk about good relationships. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And to your just to pat you on the back, Natasha. I. Going into today's conversation, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, a lot of your interviews. Mm-hmm. Um, I was standing behind you at the Protect LDS Children March. Oh, wow. As, I was one of the, one of the ambassadors. And oh, I, wow. to this day, I, I don't know where you stand doctrinally. And <laughs> so, I mean, you, I, what you to just said, point. you practice what you preach. You do, yeah. So that's great. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and I think it's it's a common value thing again, right? I find all the common values in my faith tradition that supports good relationship work. And I wish that more of us would do that, especially those in leadership positions. Mm, yeah. yeah. All right. Let's talk about sex, baby. <laughs> baby. Let's talk about baby. <laughs> Let's do it. Do it. But this okay. is going to be a quickie, people. I, was, <laughs> I know. I'm running out of time. Maybe this will be part two. I don't know. No, I think we're fine because we we're started okay. about 10 minutes late. Yeah, we're so okay. So we have another 20 to 25 minutes. Are you okay on time? Yeah, no. I just meant that I could talk 10 days I about know. sex. So. I know. I, I just don't want to I don't want to make you like you have to wake up at 4 a.m. and. Yeah. No, no, no. Tomorrow is... um. A holiday. holiday. Yes. Yes. We got you all night. That's right. <laughs> That's right. We'll, we'll plan another 20 minutes. All night long. All night long. Oh, gosh. There are just so many songs. songs. We'll, oh, we'll, so many. We'll just loop a bunch of sex songs in the back of this conversation. Um, I think that going into this, we've never brought up this topic specifically on the podcast. And it can be uncomfortable. It can be vulnerable. 
but let's do it because yeah. I think it's, it's important. So I think transitions in general in any part of life are going to make us look at every aspect of our life differently. And I think uh, religious transitions in particular will definitely make us look at our sexuality different because most religious communities or traditions come with a lot of sexual kind of narrative scripts, um, values, beliefs, behavioral kind of expectations. And so, uh, and that's what motivates us to kind of, you know, if we, if we buy into that, if that's where we come from or that's what we convert to and that's what we buy into, then we kind of tend to go down that road. So a transition is going to make you rethink that, you know, why am I behaving or holding on to certain beliefs or do I really believe what I used to believe about this particular part of my life? And so that happens with sexuality. Not to mention also that faith transitions are typically also happening at some developmental level. And in my experience, there are a lot of times they're happening right around that 35 to 55 year age that is also kind of like a midlife renegotiation. A lot of people call that the midlife crisis. Like, well, it can feel like a crisis, but you're actually supposed to be doing some of this work. Like, you know how we talk about two-year-olds have certain developmental things that they should be doing and 10-year-olds have certain developmental things they should be doing. Well, 45-year-olds have some developmental things that they should be doing. And midlife is really a time where we should be re-evaluating, re-evaluating. Where have we been? We kind of figure we have only so much time left is what I've been doing, what I want to continue to be doing. And so this kind of fits nicely with a faith transition and other transitions in life. <laughs> a lot of people go back to school or change a career or shift, you know, other aspects that don't necessarily have to do with faith. So sexuality is a huge part of that, whether we like to, to realize this or not. Um, I don't really know any system that doesn't come with some sex negative narratives hmm. attached to it. So whether that's religion, culture, family of origins, um, government, I really can't think of any system where there isn't going to be some sex negativity you're going to have to work through. And a lot of people start thinking about that in this midlife time of life. Hmm. That's good. So what kind of sex negativity do you see in the community that this podcast focuses on? Yeah. Primarily LDS United States folk. Sure. So we focus a lot on, um, even though, you know, and I did a podcast actually on, uh, you can find it on my podcast, Mormon Mental Health on sex positivity in Mormonism. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so, in touch on that too. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause I think that there are some really actually great <clears throat> uh, messages and, and compared to some other religions, we have some really wonderful things that other religions don't have around sex positivity, but the sex negative stuff, you know, can be a lot of emphasis put on purity equating to your value as a person, right? So if you behave a certain way, especially premaritally, now it really has a lot to do with your value as a person. Object lessons and Elizabeth Smart, for example, are good examples of people who've talked about this issue, you know, where you see yourself as less than because you've done something that you shouldn't have done. So there's a lot of shame and things um, 
And then we also, uh, quite frankly, sinifies, if that's a word I can make up, we, we make sin things that are actually developmentally normal. So I know this is a topic that's very kind of controversial, and yet I take the very clear stance that masturbation and self-stimulation from a very early age, actually, we can see a baby in the womb already stimulating their genitals, and we can see little kids doing that for comfort and for stress relief. It's not sexualized, you know, in those stages of development. Uh, so masturbation is a normal thing that across races, cultures, everywhere in the world, everybody masturbates. <laughs> and yet, you know, and yet in certain cultures, and, and specifically coming from the puritanical culture, we have very much made that into sin. So when you have something that is normal and you see it and, and it has a normal drive to it, right? So everybody has a normal kind of sensual sexual drive. Um, for some people that might be once a day, for some people that might be once a month, right? However often you quote unquote get naturally horny is kind of what I'm talking about. Everybody has that at some point or another, even if it's once a year, but um, it, it varies widely. And yet that's a normal drive. And so many young kids and adolescents deal with that drive through self-stimulation. And then when we say, well, that's a sin, so something that's normal is a sin, now you start a confession or a secrecy type of cycle that I hear come through my office in droves, droves, okay? Specifically with men in our church, because men typically are asked these questions more often than women. Yeah. It's not that women aren't masturbating, but a lot of times women aren't having the same talks in young women around sexuality that the boys are having um, in young men's. And so this starts a very shame-based cycle where people feel um, either secretive because they're too scared to confess or talk about it and then feel like they're doing things really badly, like passing the sacrament unworthily, and they really beat themselves up over it. Or they do confess and then they're disciplined and treated differently than the other kids. And that starts its own kind of shift of value as well. So, uh, so we have a lot of angst and a lot of sadness and fear and discipline that really outs people. Okay. Cause if somebody isn't passing the sacrament or somebody isn't getting married in the temple or if somebody isn't going to the temple trip as, as a young woman, people generally tend to make assumptions. It doesn't take very much in our culture to assume that there's been some type of purity or virtue issue, these words that we use, that again are very in of themselves, abstract, and very not, can be harmful in of themselves because they place a lot of value and meaning to people. And then we say, okay, get married. You know, all of a sudden you have a green light, but we have created an, an environment where really we don't have like, it's not like, it's not like we have a lot of comfort. You know, when you read the standard of youth, for example, pamphlet, um, you, you really, the only way you can be a successful young, young adult is to be asexual because they're even talking about, you shouldn't be having sexual thoughts, um, much less having masturbation, much less doing anything with another person. Um, 
So most people fail at that at some level or another and feel very, very badly about it, especially when we don't nuance it sufficiently or when we have certain cultures and spectrums in our Mormonism that treat this like it's second to murder. I mean, a lot, I've had lots of kids and adolescents through my office that are anxious, depressed, self-harming, um, and I mean really self-harming, not the fake self-harming that we talk about, that we talk, you know, I've heard people say masturbation. Instead of saying masturbation, they say self-harming. That's very irresponsible to use that word because self-harming in the clinical language is, you know, cutting, mm -hmm. um, burning yourself, pulling out your hair, picking at scabs. I mean, this is like a clinical issue that happens with a lot of people when they're dealing with profound amounts of anxiety or depression. And then when I, you know, when I kind of sift through and kind of get to the bottom of what's really bothering them, many of these kids, it's the fact that they're masturbating. So if we think that we're creating healthy sexual adults that are going to be able to really enjoy and love and abandon themselves into sexual, the type of sexual abandon that you need for orgasm and pleasure and mutual vulnerability and getting naked in front of another person, we're not, we don't have any way to go from this teenage space and young adult space of being not sexual at all to turning the on button post-marriage. Not to mention the, a lot of people are sexual and sexually explore, so they're bringing that guilt with them. And also not to mention that tons of people have sexual trauma and sexual abuse situations mm -hmm. that they're very confused about as to whether or not they play any role of responsibility in that and they're bringing that into marriage. So I will be fine with my practice. Again, unfortunately, due to the vast amounts of sexual harm we're doing just through sexually educating and in well-intentioned and yet harmful ways. Touching on masturbation, um, there was a question, and I think this goes along with it. It says, can you describe the elements or rules of thumb a healthy or normal use of masturbation might entail for adults? Yeah, and this, um, people aren't going to like my answers on this. It's okay. I didn't, I didn't like my answers. Well, actually, no, I liked my answers on this once upon a <laughs> time. And then I went to sex therapy school and I was like, holy crap, <laughs> I've been giving a lot of misinformation, <laughs> right? And so I think what we really need to understand when I start talking about whether it's masturbation or uh, sexually explicit materials, right, pornography, when I start talking about things that don't fit into the narrative or value system of our Mormon culture, it's difficult because we conflate our values with health. And that's not always the case. Believe it or not, there are healthy people out there that act in very different ways and have very different values than typical LDS folks. And they're not any less healthy than us. And that's very hard for us to understand, especially when we're looking at it from this perspective of, of course, you know, if, if, if we believe this kind of guidance is coming from heavenly parents, this would be the healthy way, right? But my job as a clinician, and the best metaphor I can give is that there are religions, for example, that do not believe in blood transfusions or do not believe in certain types of medical care because that's not how God would want to intervene. We as Latter-day Saints don't have those types of beliefs and we're actually very 
uh, pro-science and pro-medicine in many ways in our religion, um, in ways that other religions are not. Well, so if I am a clinician from that religion, and I'm like, no, you can never have a blood transfusion. That's unhealthy. Mm. I'm that type because that is my belief system. Then I am not doing my job as a ethical clinician of allowing my biases and my personal beliefs to step aside so that I can offer services that are clinically sound and best standards of care that the medical community has agreed to. Mm. I love that. Now, we struggle with this in the sexual community because even in the medical community and even in the therapist community, we do not have good sex education. I was a marriage and family therapist licensed for 15, 12, 15 years before I went to sex therapy certification process. And I had to shift a lot of the things that I thought. And I had gotten a really good education in marriage and family systems. I had not gotten a good education on sexual, sexual, human sexuality. Isn't that mind boggling? But because sex is so taboo, it infiltrates our, in all of our systems. I mean, when you think about, for example, homosexuality being treated as a mental health pathology, up until the 1970s, you can see how even in the medical fields and the social science fields, we have had biases that were not correct and we've had to shift and over time we get better in those communities. So when it comes to masturbation, there really isn't necessarily an unhealthy amount or a healthy amount to masturbate. Some people do it, some people don't. What I always encourage people to think about is not focus on the thing. Don't focus on the masturbation. Because quite frankly, people can use masturbation or pornography in negative ways, just like you can use vanilla marital sex in negative ways. Vanilla marital sex isn't in of itself a wonderful thing. You either make it and use it in a wonderful way, or you can have spousal rape through vanilla marital sex, okay? So we tend to see certain things as bad or good without really looking at the context. So if you have somebody who would rather stay home and masturbate for three hours than go on like a date, even though they desperately want to date, you've got a social anxiety issue, right? Like, but you could have stayed home and watched Netflix or cooked, right? All of those things would still be avoidant of what you really want in life. But because it's masturbation, most people don't be, aren't like, wait, you stayed home and, and cooked for three hours? What's wrong with you? That's a really unhealthy relationship with cooking, <laughs> and, right? Unless you know that they're avoiding something. So if you're using masturbation to stress relief, to cope, to manage maybe um, sexual frustration in a libido, in a high-low libido marriage, or maybe as a single adult where you're not ready to have sexual relationships with another person, but you still have sexual release needs, masturbation can be used very wonderfully and healthy and can edify, you know, your life. But like with anything, with food, with sex, with money, you can also use it in ways where you avoid your problems, you avoid your relationship, right? So if you're using masturbation to basically um, 
avoid a conflict in your relationship instead of really leaning into that conflict and resolving it so that you can enjoy sexuality with your spouse. That's different than a spousal couple that's using it in a very agreed upon way to manage a libido difference, right? So how are we using those things? Not are those things healthy or not? Mm. And that's true for pretty much anything you can throw at me except for criminal behavior. Mm. So let's talk about pornography then. Yeah. I would, I mean, imagine what, based on what you just said, it's similar, similar things and, and touch on specifically with pornography, how trust and secrecy plays into that. Yeah. Most people that have a problem with pornography in a marriage, it's because they have a values discrepancy with it. So there's plenty of people these days that really didn't grow up with our values and that use porn as a couple or one of them uses porn. They really could care less and they don't have any better or worse marital relationship than anybody else. So I always say, you know, pornography is not cocaine. Cocaine doesn't matter what values you grew up with. Cocaine is going to mess up your life no matter what. <laughs> Whether you think it's, it's good for you or not good for you, or you're religious or you're atheist, if you go on cocaine, you're going to have real problems. Mm. And that's how you know if something is intrinsically in of itself harmful, mm. is that it doesn't matter the narratives around it. It affects everybody the same way. And that's why cocaine is addictive. Okay. Pornography is not addictive. This is language that has been co-opted by religious communities. And it's very, very harmful to go down the addiction uh, aspect of sexuality because now it creates, first of all, a diseased model for the person who's supposedly the addict. So now you have a diseased relationship with your sexuality for the rest of your life. Second of all, it, it um, oftentimes, even though the spouse thinks it's helpful to think of their spouse as an addict, it's actually not really holding the person accountable. An addict is sick. They can't help it. So it really doesn't offer the type of accountability that you need as a couple to really focus on what you do or do not want in your sex life together. So it's, it's a, it's a cop out. And, um, and third of all, especially with criminal behavior, this is what makes me the maddest <laughs> is that people will use the, Oh, well I was addicted. So yeah, I, I, you know, I molested somebody and this actually gets people less time in jail in our country than would otherwise because it's now they're sick and there's no research to support the sickness model. So it hurts everybody. It hurts the person who thinks they're an addict. It hurts the spouse who somehow, you know, I think for a spouse, it makes sense at first. Well, if you're sick, then I can excuse this or be more loving than if you're just pissing me off, you know, so I can understand why spouses like the addiction model, but it's not helping you either. And it's definitely not helping us in the criminal department in this country where we really need to hold people accountable for criminal behavior. Pornography problems are problems of communication, of erotic taste difference, and of values discrepancy, right? So if, if and we struggle with, with values in our behavior all day long. Tell me somebody who doesn't have the value of healthy eating. And tell me somebody who hasn't at some point eaten something they wish they hadn't eaten. 
I mean, that's like the story of my daily life. <laughs> I think we each had two or three donuts today, didn't we? I had a half of one. Well, right. On average, we had three each. <laughs> or we yell at our kids more than we wish we would yell at our kids, right? Or we spend money in a way that didn't really totally fit the budget the way we wanted it to, right? And so we're constantly in this tension between our values and our behavior. And so what we know about sexually erotic imagery through, again, measuring all kinds of people is that it is arousing to everybody. Everybody is aroused. What I mean by aroused is your body response. You might get an erection or you might lubricate or your eyes might dilate or your heart rate starts increasing. That doesn't necessarily mean you like it because that's desire. You may not desire it, but you're aroused by it. And what we also know is it's been around since forever. It's on cave dwellings. As cave drawings, we are curious. We are interested in each other's sexual stories as a human race. Now, the internet has made it much more available than the cave drawings did. Yeah. <laughs> or, or much more available even than, than when I was growing up when you actually had to go buy a magazine at a store, right? Or you actually had to go get a video or you had to somehow find your uncle's stash, right? Or whatever <laughs> we did to get our access to these kinds of materials. So now it's just very readily available. That has shifted. And so now it's much more of a conversation. But it's not that this issue hasn't always been there. And it's it's not that this issue is still not in conflict with our values at times, right? So in general, religious people in this country don't have um, sexually explicit materials as part of their values. That's not always the case, but it's, I would say, primarily the case. Um, I have worked with um, believing Mormons, for example, where there was a real issue about anorgasmia for the woman. Um, there was a real issue of her wanting to explore and, and really put anything on the table. And they found tasteful um, erotic materials, visual that they both agreed on and helped stimulate her to the point to be able to reach orgasm. And they have found that very edifying and very helpful to them. And they bought those materials from ethically produced places. Um, so, you know, they kind of were able to shift some of their, they were able to fit it into their, particular situation. Um, oftentimes what's happening that's very harmful and very uh, toxic is that one person either wants to do it and doesn't see a problem with it or is drawn to it but is kind of in conflict with themselves about it. Either way, they're keeping it secret from their spouse who's very not okay with it. And so then you get into the cycle of betrayal and secrecy and feeling distrust. But again, those are not pornography's fault. Those are communication's fault, right? I mean, we like to blame pornography for all that, but that could be true of any sexual act that you're struggling with. It's just the pornography in our culture, in particular, in our culture, has been huge neon flashing lights around it. Problem, problem, problem. And what have we told spouses, especially female spouses? This will destroy your marriage. This will destroy your marriage. This will destroy your marriage. You know, this is a huge issue. Stop it. Stop it. Put, you know, put um, filters on your computer. Shut everything down. Put the computer. I mean, 
just the angst of listening to what they say about it makes the whole situation much more powerful and much more awful than people that don't have those messages. So that's one of the things that I know a lot of people won't like to hear what I'm saying. I know that. It took me a long time to shift my ideas about this. I'm not pro-porn and I don't like love porn and I'm not trying to say everybody go look at porn. Porn is no big deal. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an adult entertainment material that should, if used, should be used responsibly, right? Like a lot of adult things should be used responsibly. Um, it's a whole nother issue with teens, right? That's a whole nother issue. So they're watching things that, I don't know, you know, you go to watch, um, what's the car movie? The car movie? Yeah, what's the big, the the movie where everybody's jumping out of cars? And Fast and the Furious? Fast and Furious. You go to see Fast and Furious as a teenager, you kind of have an idea that that's not how cars work because you've been driving with your parents at 45 miles an hour back into from school with nobody jumping out of a car <laughs> most of your teenage life. Right? You go to porn it's not like you've watched your parents have sex. I hope not anyway, right? And so you have no idea that what's being depicted is like super unrealistic for the most part, right? And there's all kinds. So that's why porn literacy for kids, that's a whole nother topic. And I've got resources for that too on my websites, but that's a whole nother topic. But I'm talking about adults. Mm-hmm. It's now really an issue about um, erotic uh, templates it's an issue about how much of our life are we allowed to be private, even in our sexual life, which again, going back to that ownership issue, we have very little tolerance for privacy and adult sexuality as Mormons. And usually the lower libido partner or the lower sexual interest partner monitors what happens because we don't make room for the higher libido partner's needs or drives or fantasies. We don't even know how to talk about that. And most Mormons will not force their partner to do stuff, right? So the lower libido person usually manages the frequency and the type of sex. That doesn't mean that the lower libido partner feels that great about it, okay? If they know that their partner isn't satisfied or happy or wants more, they also feel awful. So but everybody feels awful. The higher libido partner, the lower libido, everybody feels awful. We don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to negotiate it. We don't know how to use things to our benefit. And then on top of it, we get into these toxic secrecy cycles around things like pornography that make the whole marriage feel like it's just doomed, doomed. And it's heartbreaking. And the type of sadness and tragedy and despair that comes into my office is profound. Mm. And when I have to think that my neighbors who are not Mormon, who are doing the same things, do not have that reaction, I have to think about the stories we're telling ourselves. And are they really that useful? I have a number of friends who their spouses have like cheated on them. Their spouses have um, like start. We live in a day where we just can text message anyone anytime. We can have these online conversations with people and their spouses get into that. And then, you know, there's an emotional or physical infidelity there. 
their understanding though goes back to a lot of the problems came from pornography that's that's like where the pornography that's what they say you know is like that's what they rise no. if that was true i could tell you that we would be having because again pornography i mean this is one of the beauties of it right pornography I and mean, we're in a laboratory right now yeah pornography is now more readily available than ever before everybody's looking at it, right? 10 year olds are looking at it. Everybody's in a porn panic, right? Everybody's looking at it. And so if all of these myths were true, we would be seeing huge amounts of erectile dysfunction. I haven't had any increase in erectile dysfunction come through my door. We'd have huge amounts of rape and sexual assault and objectification. That number has actually gone down. Um, we'd have huge, you know, structures of infidelity, Nope, we're having infidelity at the same rate we were having before because affairs are a very common way that people deal with crappy relationships to begin with. And do not blame pornography for your flipping affair. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Pop out. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that that's like, that's the hard thing is, you know, that's what they blame. And I think that really is LDS people, that's what our mind goes to. Oh, well, they must have been doing these other things. (laughs) And that's what it led to. So, I mean, how do you, I mean, what do you say to those couples? Is it a communication issue? Is that where the heart of it is? It can be a variety of things. I mean, and we know too that people have affairs who are actually fairly satisfied in their primary relationship. So the reasons are very varied, right? So even like the sex addiction stuff, right? Like people who maybe do have a um, what I would say kind of a negative relationship with their sexuality where they feel like it's out of control and they're spending tons more time and money on it than they would want to, right? So, well, there's 500 reasons why that could be happening. It could be clinical depression. It could be anxiety. It could be you have a personality disorder. It could be that you're high libido and you don't know how to manage it. It could be that you have poor coping skills, right? And so you, I think we try to simplify things and say, oh, you've had this problem. It's this. And we have definitely done that with pornography in our Mormon narrative. And so I, I don't want people to feel stupid, <laughs> because yeah. I, don't, I don't think we're stupid. I mean, I thought these same things. I don't think I'm stupid. And yet, you know, I think most of us have heard of self-fulfilling prophecies, right? So you tell somebody long enough something, and that's what they're going to believe and think. So you tell a kid, you know, they're stupid or lazy or whatever, they're going to grow up having kind of a negative self-image of themselves, even if they weren't really those things to begin with. So I try to tell people that even though I don't agree with our narrative, and even though I know I'm rubbing up against probably a lot of people's feelings right now as I'm talking about this issue, we were told this story. This is the story we were told. So of course we believed it. Why wouldn't we believe it? And why wouldn't we respond in ways that we've been taught to respond? With secrecy with anger and devastation, right? All of these feelings, I'm not saying they're not real or they're stupid feelings to be having. They're real feelings for real reasons, but it comes from a narrative. And, you know, and I think, I think it's good to blame the system. Now in that, I'm not saying, oh, you know, all of our leaders are stupid either. They also were given this narrative, right? I don't think that leaders came up with this stuff on their own. I mean, this is the narrative that you can go back through puritanical 
America in and why we have so many sex negative messages to begin with. I mean, the history on that alone is fascinating, right? I mean, they used to blame things like blindness and hairy palms and insanity on masturbation. And we just, all kinds of stuff that we come, that's our, that's our heritage. We have, we have, you know, like, um, inherited this crap load of messaging around sexuality, right? So then moving forward, I'm not saying everybody needs to be okay with porn or if it really goes against your values, but how do you have a more like nuanced discussion about that? You know, how do you make room for progress or for shifts, just like we do for any other quote unquote sin, right? So if my sin is that I want to yell less at my kids, I give myself room to, you know, get progress and get better, but I don't have this zero hundred percent, you know, some game that we do with sexuality where any little infraction now means our, if you do this again, our marriage is over. I've heard that so many times. And I can guarantee that the only thing that ha- that will give you is either your partner goes back into secrecy or you will for sure get a divorce because people don't shift in their behaviors zero sum. People don't go cold turkey on hardly any behavior. We It's a shift in progress. So if somebody you know, is like, yeah, I can... I mean, it's, it's, it can be fine to say, look, I know that it's normal that sexually explicit materials are arousing. And I know that it's normal to even enjoy them. And I know that it's normal that it, it, it gives me stress relief. And yet it really doesn't sit well with my values. And it doesn't sit well with the values of my spouse, right? And my spouse is really distressed by this. So it's something I'd really like to not do as much or get to a point where I don't do it all. That's, that's a perfectly legitimate path, but how do we have that conversation in ways that don't make it about sex addiction, that don't make it a zero sum game, that don't, you know, create false expectations of how that's going to work and happen? Because I can guarantee you, if you're the person on the other side of that, I doubt you want me to take any of your behaviors that you struggle with and put those types of things onto you. Right? Do, yeah. I want my, do I want my husband controlling how many donuts I eat a day? I'm going to eat freaking more donuts if he tries to do that. Yeah, right. If he starts saying, well, if you keep on eating donuts, honey, I think our marriage is over. The anxiety is going to be so huge for me. So huge that broccoli is already a problem for me. Do you think broccoli now is more appealing to me? No, <laughs> I'm going to go right back to those donuts. Feel that much more you know, upset with myself, make sure he really doesn't find out because, oh my gosh, what if he found out? Mm -hmm. So um, let's talk about maybe on a smaller scale, like day-to-day stuff, um, media choices, because that's, that's a big one for me and Alan. It's so angering to me, right? From day one, and I've had to catch my own language in this. When I see little girls, what's the first thing I want to say? Oh, sweetie, you look so cute. You look so cute. When do we go up to little boys and say, you look so cute? Maybe, but not really. Yeah. Hey, buddy, come here. What you doing? Tell me about what, you know, it's more action oriented with boys. Women are, 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 you're absolutely correct that we live in an objectifying culture. But again, that's not pornography's fault. And that's not Game of Thrones fault. That's our entire system. 
And if you wear makeup and if you wear lace and if you wear um, whatever things we've decided are feminine, you are just as much of an objectifying system as anything else. So again, we just heighten the, we amp the narrative on nudity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But your face is objectified every time you put on makeup. Now I wear makeup. I know, I know makeup is objectifying and I don't care because it makes me feel pretty. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I'm just, I'm just dealing with that dichotomy, right? I live in a society that taught me that I should wear makeup and Okay, I wear less of it than I did when I was younger, but I still like some of it. And I'm going to be okay with that because that's how it is. That's how life is, right? That's the cards I was dealt. Um, But if somebody doesn't want to wear makeup or wants to wear a lot of makeup, I support all those decisions as long as we understand that that comes from patriarchy and objectification and that both men and women have narratives that hurt us through those objectifying stances but we're not going to get rid of them all overnight and we still need to feel sexy and attractive. (laughs) So do whatever it takes to help you feel that way. (laughs) Whether you're a man or a woman (laughs) to a point, as long as it's healthy, don't like do yourself under. (laughs) So, you know, back when I told you that they research people and they hook them up to all kinds of stuff (laughs) to see if they're aroused or not aroused. (laughs) And and so when they talk to both men and women who've seen erotic imagery, and then they say, okay, what is this, you know, what does it elicit? And when they say it elicits desire and hmm, I'm kind of in the mood now, guess what they want to do next? Do they really want to go have sex with Scarlett Johansson? No, they want to go have sex with their wife or their husband. And again, we tend to not talk about this in ways that are, you know, we, we gender a lot of these messages. You know, there are women and men that both like looking at porn. Okay, that's, that's true. Yet in our culture, and especially in our Mormon culture, we've assumed that men like porn and women don't. Mm -hmm. And some of that has become self-fulfilling prophecy, right? So some women have a negative, like, disgust relationship with porn, mainly because they've been told to have that relationship with porn. Mm -hmm. Men have been told, you're probably going to like it, but you shouldn't like it. So guess what they're doing? (laughs) They're liking it and they're feeling bad about it. (laughs) So again, the power of of what we're told is very, very strong. Mm. And so, um, so don't assume that just because you don't like porn that you naturally instinctually don't like porn. Assume that your culture had something to do with how you respond to sexual stimuli, Mm. whether you're a male or a female. Okay. Um, But so since we're talking about gender, we as women, even Mormon women, don't see a lot of problems with going to Twilight, for example, and finding the vampire kind of hot and shiny. (laughs) And I've had women talk to me, Mormon women, talk very explicitly about, this is amazing, it's so hot. So this, whereas if their husbands were talking about the woman in that movie, the way that they were talking about the man, we'd have a very different conversation. So I just want to point out that there's a very interesting double standard, Mormon women and women in general. Like I just saw a commercial where a woman said something like, Oh, you're a snack. Yeah. Right. Like, Oh, you're a snack. If we had a man saying that to a woman, you're a snack. We'd be like, lock that man up. (laughs) It's so true. Yeah. Yep. 
I just went to the DMV with my son and a woman there called him a tall glass of water, oh. like a 50 year old woman. Oh, Alan's been called that. But the to woman my 17 year old son. Oh, that's yeah. awful. Yeah. yeah. How would I, and I, and I responded, but nowhere near, I had to sit with myself because nowhere near as bad as I would have responded if that would have been a 50 year old man making a comment to my 17 year old daughter. Yeah. These issues are gendered, right? Mm -hmm. We gender them. And so we don't see a problem getting turned on by George Clooney on the screen than having hot sex with my husband. In fact, we kind of support that in Mormon culture. And I see a lot of Mormon women kind of, you know, making jokes and having fun with those kinds of ideas because it does help stimulation and they do want to go have good sex and they, it helps them reach orgasm to have some level of arousal or fantasy or something along those lines. But we take these things in our environment and we, we give it to our primary partner. It, it's not that we're less than. It's like, of course, we're going to have all kinds of stimulus around us every day. So why not bring it to our partner? <laughs> that's where we want it to go. <laughs> mm -hmm. and, and that's what the research supports. So very, very few people are looking at porn because they're dissatisfied with their sex life or dissatisfied with how the partner looks or dissatisfied with anything. Some are. I mean, there are some issues with sexual chemistry, right, between couples or upset feelings. And so then you might go to a different. But again, that's not porn's problem. That's a relationship problem. That's a problem that they're not talking about, right? That there's sexual chemistry is off or attraction has weaned or something's going on in that relationship um, that they're not talking about. And then now again, it's getting blamed on porn. And I'm like, that's not what's going to help you solve this problem. You get rid of porn. That's not going to solve this problem. The problem is still there. Does that make sense? So um, I guess my last point is that I don't think as Mormons, we were encouraged to develop as sexual adults. So we do have a bit of a immature relationship with sexuality, with nudity, with, um, you know, with things of that nature. You look at Europe, for example, they are, they are appalled at what we are allowing our children to see from a violence perspective. Appalled. Even going back to the Twilight movie, I found this fascinating. The Mormon lady wrote it. All the Mormons were into it. Everybody let all their daughters go watch every movie with arms being ripped off and bodies and violence and biting. And, and they did not let their daughters and sons go see that last movie where they were going to see a marital sexual encounter. I was mind blown. Mind blown. Mm. It was not even a bad sexual scene compared to half the crap that they can see on Netflix, for goodness grief. Yeah. And second of all, that's exactly what we want them to experience according to our value system. We were completely comfortable with murder and disembodiment, not comfortable with that. Mm. Shocking. We need to think about what we're really doing. What are we really doing? What messages are we really giving our kids? And is it so moral as we think it is? Mm. I, wow. I, yeah. I, uh, I mean, I'm like, my mind's like blown throughout <laughs> this entire 
throughout this entire episode. And now I, I just like, it's, it's been very eye opening and I love it. Do you have another hour? Yeah. <laughs> I do want to give you a chance to just, I mean, tell the listeners if you had a, a few top piece of pieces of advice that we haven't already gotten that into we that. haven't already gotten into mm-hmm. what, what else would you like to say? Well, I would like to wrap up this, this sexuality piece with um, something that's been very helpful to me that's come through the work of a man called Doug Braun Harvey. Um, and by the way, so just again, a few more resources. It's amazing all the things that I've produced really when I think about it, mainly just because I was trying to learn. <laughs> and so guess what I did? I started a podcast and I would bring people on that I wanted to learn from, right? So I have a podcast that's called Mormon Sex Info. And on that podcast, I um, interviewed this man, Doug Braun Harvey, who's kind of the leading sexologist in our country right now. And one thing that he's really beautifully put together is this concept of the six principles of sexual health. And that these principles really, it's hard to find people that won't agree with them. You know, whether they're religious or not religious or sexologists or not sexologists. And so no matter the, the situation, these six principles are really important. So one is consent. Mm. And you think consent is easy. It's not. Okay. When you think about how many Mormon women, for example, are having duty sex, that's not real consent. I mean, it's kind of like, it's kind of half consent. Mm. Um, And it's a conversation that we are not having in our culture. Okay. And I'm telling you, vaginas could care less if you're married or if you love this guy. They only care if you're being consensual. So duty sex is oftentimes a way to avoid conflict or to meet somebody else's needs because you love that person. And yet you start shutting down your own sexuality in ways that are very profound and hard to recover from. So that's, that's a whole nother thing that Mormon couples need to be addressing. Two is exploitation. Avoid exploitation. You think that would be easy. Exploitation, what does that mean? Sex trafficking? Yeah, none of us are sex traffickers, right? No, exploitation is guilt tripping and we all do it. We all do it. The pouty silent treatment when you don't get what you want, the, you know, well, I'll do it if you do this for me or all of these unhealthy patterns that people get into that are actually quite exploitative of one another in very committed, supposedly loving relationships. Number three principle, avoiding unwanted pregnancy and STIs, right? So that's, we want to make sure we're all on the same page when we're, and again, I've had marital couples where they're not being truthful about their birth control in mm. okay, Mormon land. Okay. Um, or even truthful about STIs that they had when they were not married, because again, there's so much shame about premarital experiences. Number four. Okay. So number four is honesty, right? A lot of what we've been talking about, just are we being honest in our and, and what we want and what we're hoping and our expectations and our differences and our frustrations and our joy, right? All of that stuff that has to do with sexuality. Number five is, are we in a space where we have shared values or at least respect our values, right? So are we, are we acting in a way that's consistent with our values or with our partner's values? And are we making negotiations around that if there are differences in values? Okay. Number six is mutual pleasure, which you'd think, again, that would be a no-brainer, but the reality is that men still have 30% more orgasms than women in our country, and 
quite frankly, in our Mormon culture, I'd be very interested in data around orgasmic um, women versus men. So again, we usually go into Mormon marriages with very little sex education, comprehensive sex education. I still have tons of women that are coming in expecting to have primary orgasm through penis and vagina sex, which is not a reliable way to have an orgasm as a female. Many women don't even know what their clitoris is. Many women, of course, have not explored themselves or know their own capacity for pleasure because of our ideas around masturbation. The pleasure gap between men and women in sex is huge. We think that there's a libido difference. <laughs> I don't think so. Not so much. There really isn't that many differences between men and women. We think men are these sex-crazed animals and women are low libido. Not so much. The, the data doesn't support that. Men have a tiny bit more testosterone than women. Women still have testosterone. We have lots of other hormones. So do men. Um, we all have sexual drive but um, in, in some way or another. I mean, there are a few people that would consider themselves asexual, but even asexual people masturbate for the most part. So most people have some level of sexual drive, uh, even if it's very low. So when you think about that, and I'll just give you two scenarios to hopefully blow your mind, because I'm trying to blow your minds. <laughs> Done. You, can have, you can have a married couple sitting in the pews with temple recommends in hand who are not following hardly any of the six sexual principles. And you can have two college um, kiddos having a casual hookup who followed all six of them. Sleep on that. <laughs> See if this sound translates the non-video podcast. <laughs> That's the mind, the universal symbol for mind blown, right? Now, I'm not saying that I love casual hookups in college, but I'm just saying there's a lot of kids these days who are very savvy, are very sex positive, don't have the same values that we might have coming from Mormonism, and they're following all those sexual principles. Um, Whereas many of us, so don't tell your kids the lie that marital sex is good sex or healthy sex. Marital sex is a type of sex that can be healthy and wonderful and pleasurable, and it can be awful, toxic, and abusive. Do not make that mistake. I have tons of resources on sextalkwithnatasha.com. Mm. webinars Natasha.com. okay great sex talk with natasha.com webinars on five lies that por that they tell you about pornography um out of control behavior when that's really an issue tons of parenting types of webinars so if you want to dive into any of this stuff deeper i really try to create resources because there's not a lot out there that you can really trust right. um and a lot of the stuff that comes from unfortunately our culture is crap mm. crap okay i mean some of the stuff that i see coming out of our culture is so unethical that it just makes me want to scream like mm. sons of helaman please 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 do not go to programs like sons of helaman um, or other reparative type therapies or all kinds of there's tons of unethical practices that are still happening in the mental health community with licensed professionals do your homework on people. Hmm. Do your homework on the people that you're seeing. Uh, if couples want to reach out to you, do you counsel um, over Skype? How do you do that? Yeah, so I run an online practice. It's called Symmetry Solutions, and you can find all of that at symmetrysouls.com. 
Um, so I see people and I also have like six providers who work for me who are also like three of them are trained in sex therapy or are getting their training in that. Um, lot, we specialize in faith transitions. We specialize in areas of sexuality and we specialize in the intersections of all those things. So for, I guess for your audience, we'd be a really good fit. Uh, we do offer online um, services, uh, both wellness coaching and or therapy uh, services, depending on your needs and also geographical limitations, depending on what we can do with our licensees. So, um, but, and we also offer you resources or referrals if we're not a good fit. So we can be a good place to start. Yeah. Everything but- that I've mentioned, because I know I have a lot of <laughs> I have a lot of things that I've done over the years. You can find it at tashaparker.org. So every single project I'm working on, there's a link to it on my main page. Any other projects that you're currently working on that you would like to Plug. make sure that, yeah, yeah, I mean, people can go there, but you've got their attention now. Anything? You're going to be at the Thrive <laughs> Concert. Thrive Concert. 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 <laughs> it might be a concert. Yeah, conference. <laughs> yes, I will be at Thrive, which is happening in a few weeks. I think that's already full, but hopefully they'll do it again. And so at least people can know about it. Um, I'll be at Sunstone okay. presenting on several topics. Um, the, um, let's see, I will be, uh, like I said, I've got some webinars going up right now for mixed faith marriages. So they're going up this week. Um, I run the Mormon mental health podcast. So that's all kinds of issues, mental health that Mormons, you know, might want information on. I run the Mormon sex info podcast and, um, and I do this program sex talk with Natasha. Awesome. Could you add anything else to your plate? <laughs> no, no. I need to get rid of some things. <laughs> well, we are so grateful that you added us to your plate by letting us interview yeah. you. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. As you can tell, I'm super passionate about these things and I'm passionate because I care about people like you. I am people like you and I care about people like you. And, um, and I'm a big believer that we should try, I mean, life is tragic enough. And I, I think that we can do a lot to avoid unnecessary tragedy through education, through good resources and mixed faith marriages is a struggle. And I highly recommend if you can to get help, you don't need to figure it out on your own, listening to podcasts like this, self-help books, um, seeing a professional who really will have both of your backs. You really need somebody who will really get where both of you are coming from and that you both feel comfortable with. All yeah. of that is All good. of that. Yep. I wish that we would have known about you three years ago, two years ago, <laughs> honestly, because, um, you know, we, we were in the dark for a long time. We just had to figure it out. And so um, yeah. it's so helpful to shed a light on people who are, um, out there doing it 20 plus years that it's such a helpful tool. So please go, if you have any of the questions, you can go to any of the tools that Natasha has, um, has suggested that she has. Thank you again, Natasha, for yes, joining us. This you. has been Marriage on a Tightrope. Uh, join us on Facebook, on our Facebook group and on our Instagram account, which is run by Katie. You can email us at marriage on a tightrope at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you as well. If you have any follow-up questions for Natasha, um, yeah, send them over our way, her way, any way you want. And thank you again for, for listening. Thanks for, for being on this crazy ride. I'm, I'm, I 
just can't wait to get off the podcast because I want to just go digest this with you. It's been, it's been <laughs> yeah, a thanks really, a lot. We're gonna have to. <laughs> no, it's just been a really good. A lot of things to think about on yeah. both sides. And yeah. So, again, Natasha, best thing. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.